What up artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity and you know maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. So welcome to Art Pays Me. We have someone who is I'm gonna make it weird for a second, Tina. I'm sorry. Uh, a great okay. influence. She's, she's a great influence on me. And um, Tina Asmaker, I want to ask you, what is it that you do? Well, I do a few things, um, and I've had many iterations of my career and several reinventions. But currently, I. I'm a coach who helps creative professionals get to the other side, which means helping people figure out where they are, where they want to go, and how they can build a bridge to get there. And then in addition to coaching, I do writing and speaking also around the same themes that I you know, tackle in my coaching practice. So um, helping people think more sustainably about their careers, helping people take action, um, helping people reimagine what's possible for their work and lives. Very cool. Very cool. So you mentioned like what you're doing now, mm-hmm. the way I discovered you actually had a major impact on me as a creative, um, years ago. So, <laughs> um, I discovered you through the great discontent mm-hmm. and in that, those days, I was like lost. I was trying to rediscover my creative side and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And it's working a day job. I was like, but I want to do something more. I want to do something with more meaning. And I came across the great discontent. And, you know, I was introduced to a whole world of creatives that I had never known before mm-hmm. and got to learn their stories. and. Uh, I actually even started to do uh, my own interview series and I very much modeled it after this, after you and after what you were doing. And I, in a lot of ways, feel like Art Pays Me wouldn't exist as the podcast without the great discontent. So I want to give you some props for that. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that means, that means so much um, to know that the work you've put out in the world has had you know, a direct impact on someone's career or life. I mean, that's, that's thank you. Yeah. And, and also like you've, you've always been a strong advocate for diverse voices and I really appreciate that too. It's just uh, in the creative industry, sometimes we don't mm-hmm. always feel there's as much representation. And I, I always appreciate that you've been an advocate in that way. Thank you. Um, so where did you grow up? I was born and raised in a small town in Michigan called Port Huron. It is the boyhood home of Thomas Edison. We have a small statue there and a little museum in a train depot. (laughs) Mm. Um, Yeah, and it's about, you know, 60 miles or so from Detroit. Um, Do you want to know more? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, so did you, like, when people ask you, do you generally feel like you're a Detroit person? Or is it like, no? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, Detroit was the biggest city that I lived near. And uh, I didn't spend a lot of time there as a kid. But as soon as I was old enough to drive and I had 
license, my license in a car. Um, my friends and I would often go to Detroit for shows and see, you know, musicians that we were into. There's always a lot going on. I mean, Detroit's having a real boom right now and a, and a you know, renaissance. But even back then, it was always, it's always been a great music city. So, um, or going to the, the, you know, the DIA and uh, looking at art um, or, or going to see one of the many sports teams. Um, so yeah, I definitely identify with being from the southeastern part of Michigan. Mm. Um, and even now that I've lived in, uh, even though I've, I've not lived in Michigan for, mm, I think, eight years or so, I still feel like uh, a Midwesterner, definitely. Yeah, it kind of carries with you. I, I was born in Bermuda, and I don't think I'll ever not, and I, I currently live in Halifax, Nova Scotia, in Canada, <laughs> and I'll never not be a Bermudian. I just, I can't. It, it, it's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Actually, funnily enough, Detroit is the first place that I ever saw snow uh, when I was like five, I think. Yeah, <laughs> we get, we get, there's lots of it there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I know I see lots of it all the time. So it's uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, and like, so what were you like as a child? Were you like a creative type or what were you like? Well, I mean, I think we're all creative as children um, mm-hmm. because we, we don't know the rules yet, right? We don't know. No one has told us you can't do it this way. You can't do it that way. And so we just... Um, carry on and use our imaginations um in a way that makes sense to us and so yeah I think I think we're all creative as children I was definitely creative um I had a huge imagination and spent a lot of time reading from a young age so I was very much into stories and books um and I would get in trouble because I would stay up reading very late you know using my nightlight to read holding the book up to the nightlight (laughs) And, um, you know, there'd be like multiple check-ins and I would not be sleeping. And sometimes I would try to pretend I was sleeping, but I would always get caught. And it's like, okay, put the book down. And, you know, I would negotiate, okay, one more chapter. Um, I was just a voracious reader and, and really loved the written word. Um, and then, yeah, I was, I was always into drawing, um, you know, it was like drawing my favorite cartoon characters to start and then trying to draw things from real life. And I took you know, I took art class all through school from, you know, elementary through middle and high school. Um, I even took a lot of art classes in college, but um, wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. And I went to community college and I took a lot of fine art classes um, off the bat. Um, and then English was always, you know, I excelled in English. Like it was all the rules around English. Uh, English is actually a confusing language. Um, there's so many uh, caveats. Um, and idiosyncrasies, but I was always good at English and I always loved reading aloud in class. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've always been drawn to those things, but I didn't necessarily know how to use them in, you know, the quote, quote unquote, the real world where you have to have a job and make money and support yourself um, and contribute to your family. So I, you know, when you reach the point in, I think when you're a senior in high school, um, anyway, we ha- had to do an assessment and it's kind of like a skills assessment to point you toward a career that could potentially align with your interests. And I think, you know, I had like journalist um, might have had 
psychologist. At one time I thought maybe I'll be a veterinarian because I loved animals, but then I realized that there were hard parts of that job too that I didn't want to do. Um, And so, yeah, I think um, I was always imaginative and creative and um, loved to be playing outside in nature and, you know, making forts and, and just playing pretend. Um, And then I think there was some tension when it came time to decide, you know, as you grow, okay, what, what path are you going to take out of high school? Um, You can't just like, you know, hang around and take art classes (laughs) for the rest of your life. Uh, What are you going to do? Yeah. So, and I understand you ended up going into social work at some point. Yeah, I did. So I, um, I went to community college, like I said, most of my friends, I had a few friends that also went to community college. um, But a lot of my friends did go away to school, but I didn't have, you know, there was no college savings for me. It was um, either take out loans or work and pay. Um, But I actually got a Pell Grant, which is a need-based grant. Um, And then I had, I got a small scholarship um, to the community college because of grades. And, and I just went there and signed up for classes, you know, the basic courses that you have to take. And then the classes that I was interested in, which was, you know, like art and and English literature. Um, And then, yeah, I was walking one day through the student center and they had a job board. And at the time I was working retail, I was working at a clothing store in the mall. And I was working at a pizza place called Hungry Howie's. And if anyone is from the Midwest, they will know Hungry Howie's. Where it's famous for the flavored crust, um, seven different options. And um, and I was like, you know, I had worked both of those jobs for a few years. And um, yeah, just out of curiosity, I read the job board. And one of the jobs was a youth care worker. And it was a time where, you know, you had, it just had the basic info. It didn't even say the name of the, organization it just had a fax number so I had to go to the student center take my resume and they faxed it to the number and then you know I got a call to set up an interview and it turns out that it was for the local runaway and homeless youth shelter and I don't know how I got the job because I was only 18 and I didn't really know what I was doing but I must have come off well in the interview I got hired and I, um, you know, the young people I was working with at the emergency shelter were ages 10 to 17. So I was only a year older than some of them. And, you know, parents would sometimes come to the door and say, um, you know, can I speak to a staff? And I would say, well, I'm, I'm the staff. How could I help you? So that was really uh, an interesting experience for me. But I saw the social workers who um, worked at the shelter and, you know, they were doing individual and family meetings. Uh, working to reunite families um, and or help the young people we're working with find you know, more permanent housing. And I really liked this idea of helping someone in a tangible way. And I've always deeply cared about people and I've always had a high level of empathy just naturally, you know, um, for people and animals and um, in the world. And, and so I really tapped into that when I was working at the shelter and I decided to change my major. Um, at the time I was just majoring, I was like, maybe I'll study design, maybe I'll study fine art, maybe English, I don't know. And I, I declare my major social work. Um, and I'll never forget, I had a teacher, David Korf, Professor Korf. He, um, I had him for art history and a few design courses. And he just, you know, I told him I was switching majors and he just, he said to me, you know, Tina, you're creative and you'll always be creative. And I said, <laughs> I know, but I just, I need to do this. And what I thought I was doing was 
you know, taking a path that was more defined um, because I just didn't know how to move forward taking random courses here and there with my interest in creativity. I didn't see a path forward, um, especially a path that could sustain myself. And I didn't come from a family that had money. Like it, there was no safety net. So if I didn't figure out a career and figure out a way to support myself, then you know I would have no money to pay the yeah. bills. And so um, I thought, well, I could have this career as a social worker and I could really help people. And you know, maybe that's my contribution to the world. And so I, I switched majors. I went to Wayne State in Detroit, which is, has an excellent social work program and I had the best um, professors and I had multiple internship experiences. And then I graduated in 2006. It took me, took me like seven years to get my bachelor's because I had all these prereqs once I changed my major and, um, you know, I had to do those. Yeah. Like the social work program didn't take all the art classes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I started working. I stayed at the same agency, but I, I switched to a different program of theirs um, called a transitional living program. And that was working with older um, youth. So it was ages, I believe it was 16 to 21. And that was working with young people in transition. And it's the same thing I do now. You're here, you want to get here. How can you build the bridge to get there? What skills and resources do you need? And how can I support you and advocate for you? And so um, the goal was, you know, they could live at the program while they were working and saving and, um, you know, building a foundation to go back out on their own and, and um, live their lives. And that, and I did that for a number of years. And then, and then I started, uh, co-founded the thing that, that you discovered me through, which is the great discontent. Right. So like, I'm, I'm picking up on a couple of things. You had to figure out a way to get people to trust you. Uh, like, and you had to build credit, establish credibility for yourself as this 18 year old in, in the beginning, uh, when the parents might've been like, who, who the hell is like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> So there's that. So today, as as a as a coach, like you really need to have um, the trust and and uh, uh, credibility in a lot of ways to to, to get people on board. So uh, I find it very interesting that things kind of came full circle mm -hmm. for you in that way. Um, like in terms of your clientele today, like what are some of the common challenges that they tend to have yeah that's a great question and just to note I mean you're absolutely right I thought when I left social work to do the great discontent which was a creative endeavor I thought I was leaving social work behind forever but the joke's on me because <laughs> it's come full circle and now you know everything I mean everything I've done since social work has been influenced by social work and the education and experience I had so yeah um the coaching clients you know I mean, I would say nine out of 10 coaching clients who come to me, they're in some sort of transition. They're either thinking about making a change, they're making a change and they're real, they're, they're feeling overwhelmed and, you know, not supported in the way they want to be. Um, or maybe they've just made a change and they thought that was going to solve their problem. And guess what? The challenge is still there. You know, just because we make a change doesn't mean that it's going to solve the thing we're trying to solve. And so people come to me because they're looking for a thought partner. They're looking for accountability. They're looking for someone who has an objective perspective. You know, I'm not invested in my clients having a particular outcome like family and friends might be. Mm -hmm. I really want them to work toward their goals. So 
a lot of the things that people come to me for are really just, you know, I'm here and I want to be there. And that can look like, you know, I'm, I'm working full time for a company that no longer aligns with my values or, you know what, I've climbed the ladder of success and I should be fulfilled, but I'm not. Mm. Or, um, I have, you know, I'm, I'm a freelancer and I, I'm really thinking about the next level of my business and how I can get there. Or, um, you know, I'm at the end of the season of my career. I know there's something else on the horizon, but I don't know what's next. So a lot of it is, you know, it's just answering that question, what's next? And so many times what we ask ourselves is, well, how do I know the right thing to do? And it's not necessarily a matter of have choosing the right path over the wrong path. It's a matter of choosing a path that aligns with your values and priorities for whatever season of your career that you're in. And we do a lot of work around that to help people come back to themselves and mm-hmm. to rediscover, you know, what's important to me because there's so much um, external noise about what success is, what we should be doing, what our path should look like. And it's important to, on some level, abandon all of that and, and come back to ourselves and, and have a conversation with ourselves about the kind of work we want to do, the kind of career we want to have, and the kind of life we want to live. That's super important work uh, because, you know, a lot of people approach me as well and say, I've got this idea or I've got a lot of ideas. I know I want to be creative. I know I want to do blah, blah, blah. They have no idea where to start, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's like the answer is within you. Like It really is uh, like, and I, I don't have the skills to help them. <laughs> get there. Like, Send so, them to me. Yeah, I was like, hey, check out Tina, she'll help you out. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's important. Like people really struggle with how to figure out what it is they actually want once they're faced with having to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we when we are at the beginning of our career, we think if I can just have this title, if I can just make this salary, if I can just work for this company, and what happens is we get those things and we still feel disconnected or out of alignment with our work, or we're like, you know, I should be happy. I thought this was what I wanted, and so, you know, a lot of times again, yeah, it's about coming back to yourself and 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 asking, okay, why do I feel disconnected now that I have the thing that I want? What is this really about? Yeah, I I, I would say that I'm probably there. <laughs> no, like when I objectively look around, I'm like, I have pretty much all of my life goals accomplished and I should feel happy, but I'm not. I'm not happy all the time. And like, and that great discontent thing, I'm like, I did come to a point where I realized like creatives don't have to be depressed, don't have to be sad. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know, I learned from it and I moved past it and now I feel like I'm slipping right back into that again. And so I'm like, there's some kind of misalignment somewhere that I got to figure out. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's ongoing. I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's like owning a car, you know, mm-hmm. you have, you have to do maintenance work. The True. tech engine light comes on and it's like, okay, what now? Or you blow a tire and you have to change it. It's, 
it's just stuff comes up. You never reach a point in your career where you have arrived and you can just like coast and glide. So it makes sense. I think that, you know, all of life is cyclical and we look at the seasons of nature and I think our careers are this, are similar in that we have seasons where we are feeling really restless and discontent and we're not sure what's next. And we have seasons where we're like, oh my gosh, there's so much abundance and I'm so, you know, happy with where I'm at. And then we have seasons where, you know, we're kind of in between and we're planning and laying a foundation and incubating an idea. So it's never the same. And that goes for someone who is independent as a freelancer and also someone who works for a company or organization. Because even if you work for someone else, you can't take your career for granted. You can't, you know, no one, no one is going to drive your career forward. You really have to take ownership of it. So it makes sense that you're, you know, you're in that place after achieving a few things and, you know, reevaluate and um, figure out, you know, what's next? Why am I feeling this way? And then you can move forward and, you know, you'll, you'll go, go through it again and again throughout your career. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to, to taking a non-traditional path. <laughs> no, seriously. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um it's kind of terrifying uh i see i i have the golden handcuffs right now i have a day job so i haven't fully jumped off the ledge in in that way um but i think that's what terrifying in my mind i'm a little terrified like what if i did jump off the ledge what happens like i'm gonna have to be comfortable with any kind of new transitions that happen, any changes that yeah. may, or may not go the way I expect them to go and go and uh, flow with it. Um, yeah. Is, is there anyone in the coaching space that you say you look up to that you're like, when you decided that that's what you want to do, that's what I want to be. Or is it just, no, it just automatically, you just knew you didn't have a model per se. Yeah, I, I didn't really have a model. I mean, I've always been interested in helping other people. And I okay. think that for me, it was more of an aha moment when I realized I am interested in going back to my social worker roots, but I don't want to operate within, you know, a system that is that is bureaucratic and tells me how I have to structure my work. Um, and then I really, I felt sad about leaving the creative community when I transitioned out of the great discontent. I I really wanted to continue doing work with creative professionals. And I, and so I was thinking about social work. I was thinking about the creative community. And, and then um, I was talking to a friend at a party and he um, told me he had been working with a coach, a life coach, and he really enjoyed the process because it was different than therapy. Uh, you know, it was very action oriented, but the coach didn't necessarily understand the creative landscape. And that's when I had an aha moment that, you know, maybe I don't have to go back to social work and abandon the creative community. Maybe I can integrate everything I've done into this coaching thing. And and I didn't really even know, you know, I had heard of coaching and, you know, I think most people, when they hear of life coach, they think about, you know, maybe Tony Robbins or someone like that in pop culture. And, I don't think Tony Robbins even has training as a coach. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't really know much about him other than his name and that people associate him with a coach, yeah. being a coach. But um, I didn't know, I didn't know anyone working in this space. I mean, I do now I have, you know, there's some colleagues who I've, we've discovered each other and connected, but at the time I just thought I'm going to combine 
my love for the creative community with my desire to help people in a tangible and direct way. And I'll get trained as a coach and I'll just see if people in the creative community want to work with me because what was happening, you know, when I was doing the great discontent magazine, um, I was, there was a lot of inspiration being put out into the world through the magazine. And that was great. But what would happen is people would contact us and say, you know, I feel so inspired. Thank you. Um, but I'm not sure what to do next, or I feel inspired, but I also feel stuck. And I've always felt like I wanted to give more, but you just can't scale that (laughs) when you have such a large community. And so coaching allowed me to kind of fill in this missing piece of, okay, you feel inspired and ready to, to do something different. Now let's talk about what that could be. Um, and so, so it just felt like a natural progression, which I didn't plan. Um, there was no master plan, but I just started telling people, you know, I signed up for the coach training and started telling people, um, I'm going to be a coach for the creative community. And, you know, I would tell people at events, um, I would tell people like, like I told John Maida, who's, you know, like a really well-known, you know, designer and educator and just a great thinker. And, and I told him, I was just talking to him at a conference and he's like, what are you up to? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be trained as a coach and I'm going to coach creatives. And he, he told, he said, oh, that, that's a great idea. Um, and so I just started getting feedback from people who were saying, that's a great idea. I could really use that. I know people that could really use that. And I started planting seeds before I was even trained, not knowing if it would work or not, you know, um, but it did. <laughs> mm, that's actually, that's very, uh, that's something we could pick up on actually, like just putting, it's almost like semi-accountability partners. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. John Maid is great, actually. I've been following him for a while uh, as well. And, and uh, the amount, the people that you have been able to, to talk to, mm-hmm. like, how, like, how is that? Do you feel like you've just got like a brain full of all of this information that is like, or like, or is there, is there like one consistent thing that you can say, they seem to all be on this same page, these super successful creators? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, over the course of about six years, when I was working on The Great Discontent, you know, I interviewed more than 250 individuals who work in different creative fields, you know, so artists, writers, designers, filmmakers, photographers, um, comedians, like all kinds of creatives. And I think, you know, first of all, you know, they're, they're just people too. Um, and, and I had, I had great experiences, you know, people were for the most part really open and warm and welcoming. Um, but what I realized is that most people, with a few exceptions, like Michael Beirut, for example, mm-hmm. um, has, you know, had a pretty consistent path, not a lot of tr- change or transition. <laughs> He's been working at Pentagram for a very long time. But most people had many moments of feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure about the path I'm on. I'm going to try something new without knowing what the outcome will be because I'm following my intuition. And I think that you know, one of the big insights was that these people I really admire and respect whose work is well known, they have been in many moments where they didn't know what they were doing. 
And they still mm-hmm. feel like that. And so feeling like an imposter or feeling like, oh my gosh, people are going to find me out. I don't know what I'm doing. And that's normal. It's a normal part of the creative process and taking a non-traditional path. And then the other thing was that people, you know, there was this, this pattern of people really following their intuition and being in touch with their own voice. And I think that in order, that's a rarity now um, because we can always input you know, we have our phones, which are these little devices that always allow, that allow us to input when we're bored or, you know, whatever. We're not, we don't really have time set aside unless we make it to just sit with our own thoughts and mm-hmm. listen to our own voice. But the, these people were really in tune with themselves and sometimes would just follow a hunch about what was next, mm-hmm. whether it was a passion project or self-initiated work that led them to a really cool commercial gig um yeah so those were the major themes interesting uh, interesting okay cool so your word for 2020 is transition mm-hmm. you, you read my you, newsletter <laughs> doing your homework <laughs> yeah you know you know i'm trying to learn like you're you're like my um uh now the name slip in. I, I I just you know I really I really respect your interview ability, so I'm trying to you know kind of step up. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, um, the transition thing. So you, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but you sure. have transition coming. I do. Yeah. So 2020, um, I am going to be a mom. I'm making a big personal transition, which will of course affect my work and the way I'm thinking about my work and how I move through uh, my career. Um, But yeah, in the spring, um, my partner and I are expecting our first child and it's exciting. And um, it's at the same time, it's, you know, I don't know how things will be on the other side. And, you know, I have all these questions, like I'm taking time off. So I'm going to, um, I'm working this first quarter, taking clients. I'm, I have some awesome talks coming up, um, including the Apple store and AIGA and creative mornings, which hasn't been announced yet. So hopefully this comes out after that, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) and, and then, um, I, yeah, I'm taking on clients and, and so I'm winding up right now just to wind down in a few months and then taking time off to be with this new family of mine. And I, you know, I have fears, of course, like when I come back in the fall, um, will people remember who I am? Will anyone want to work with me? Will I still be relevant? Um, and I think those are probably, I think probably none of those things will happen. I think that, you know, I'll just have more to add to the conversation and there'll be a new dynamic that I've experienced um, and more people I can relate to because of the experience of, uh, you know, parenting and having a family. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm back in this place, you know, in the same way that I transitioned from the great discontent into coaching. And there was a period of time where I wasn't sure how things were going to go. It was this real place of, um, not knowing, I feel like I'm going into that place again. So I'm just reminding myself, like, hey, you've done this before. Um, the situation's different. The experience is different. But you know how to be in a place where you don't know what's going to happen, and kind of hang with it and be okay with it. So I'm, I'm just trying to remain open. Um, hey, 
which is hard when you feel like, oh, I just want to plan everything, you know, <laughs> but things never go according to plan, <laughs> especially with babies and kids, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm home from work today because one of my kids is, is sick. So I had to work from home and you, like these kind of things just, they, they happen all the time and you kind of have to learn to, to roll with them. Uh, and it's uh, for me, even like over the holidays, I, I, damaged my car so then it's like another thing and then mm. I start freaking out about that and then like my wife had to remind me like Dwayne uh, this stuff is going to continue to happen you know we just gotta take it move it roll with it and parenting is just it's just constantly like that however it's um it's just an amazing experience so congratulations thank you uh, on that transition I'm excited. I was, I was really ha genuinely happy for you when, when I, I saw that pop up. So Thank you. Yeah, it feels like, you know, it's a whole new adventure and um, something I wasn't sure if I would ever do, um, but I'm so glad that I am. And um, yeah, I'm excited to learn. You know, I'm calling it, it's like, you know, I'm going on maternity leave, but I'm calling it my baby sabbatical because <laughs> I like the uh, term sabbatical because I think it implies that, you know, we are, we're learning and growing and, um, you know, discovering things about ourselves in the world. And that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. And I think maternity leave, sometimes people feel like you're just getting time off, which it's not time off at all. You're going to be very busy. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know what, actually that reminds me, I listened to your interview with Stacy London um, mm -hmm. and um, she kind of talked about uh, skipping past the motherhood thing. And um, also, it also reminded me of something that you wrote about recently too, and just about aging and create as a creative and like your interview with her kind of talk, touched on that uh, stuff a bit too. Do you ever feel, I mean, I like you said, everyone feels imposter syndrome, but do you ever feel like age takes away some of your validity as a creative? I feel the opposite. I mean, I'm, I'm 38. Um, I, I write for 99U and I think you're probably referencing the piece I wrote for them about ageism where I interviewed, I think I interviewed six creatives all over the age of, I think they're all over 50. Um, and some of them, most of them just did disclose their age. And, you know, what struck me is that I went into the piece thinking, you know, these people I'm interviewing are going to like warn me about all the pitfalls and they're going to, you know, I, I thought it might, the conversations, I wasn't sure if they were going to be more focused on the downsides of aging and the challenges, but actually what it, it turned out that everyone I talked to said, yes, sure, there are challenges, but here's what I'm doing about it. And in fact, I see aging as, um, an advantage and I don't know maybe that maybe that changes at a, at a certain age right um because most of them are in their I think they're all in their you know 50s and maybe maybe a couple in the early 60s but yeah um I I don't know I feel every year I feel um like I have more wisdom I feel more confident in myself I still don't entirely feel like oh yeah I know 100% what I'm doing but I know my voice more and more I am trusting my intuition more and more and I think that some of the pressure to keep up with 
peers or, um, you know, be cool <laughs> or be in the in crowd. Like, I just don't, I just don't care if I'm cool. You know, I want to do the work that I'm here to do. I want to spend time with the people I care about. I want to invest energy into the things that are important. And I think when I was younger, I mean, I was, and maybe this is, you know, I talked to my girlfriends a lot about this. Maybe this is particular to women. I'm not sure. Maybe men feel similarly, but I felt as a young woman in the world, I really felt unsure of my voice and what I had to contribute. And I think that a lot of my identity felt tied to my relationships, you know, and then, and then my marriage and then the business that I co-founded with my former husband. And for a long time, I didn't feel like I had my own identity. And now I do feel like that. Yeah. And I think it took, you know, till my mid thirties to really say, Oh, Hey, you can have your own identity and, um, and that's okay. And you don't have to just be who you think everyone else wants you to be. And so I think I feel, I feel better with age and I feel like it just adds to my expertise. That's a great point. I, I'm so torn with that because I, I agree 100%. I've started to care less about the cool stuff. And I'm 38 as well. So shout out to the uh, <laughs> yeah. alpha millennials, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it was like, you know, part, but I, I have a streetwear brand and that's very um, yeah. youth culture focused. But then I look at it, a lot of the bigger brands and whatever creative directors there are older than me or in my age bracket. Uh, but they have achieved a lot greater success than I am. So then I start feeling like I've wasted a lot of time and all that imposter syndrome kicks in again. Um, but at the same time, I do just, I'm starting to really care less about trying to cater to what like a 20 year old might think. And it's great if they like what I'm doing, but I, I would just rather do something that feels real to me. Yeah. Um, and, and that part of it does feel great. And, but it does every now and then I'm still like, but I still kind of want to be cool sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah. And, and I think too, also though, I think, and you may feel this way too, but I think it's important for people in the creative industry to remain connected to what's contemporary. In, for sure. Level. So yeah. a lot of times I feel younger than the people I tend to hang around because they're not in the creative industry, just because I'm listening to what's new in music. I'm checking out what's happening new in visual culture and yeah. meme culture and all that kind of stuff, because I feel like I need to as a creative. Um, and that, that keeps me feeling young, even if my body isn't necessarily young. <laughs> Stacy London kind of hinted to something like that, except her friends were younger instead of, older <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I think that um yeah I mean I, I feel like it um working in a world you know in a, in a in a creative field where things are less traditional um it feels like there's more room for um aging in that you can be doing work that is you know, feels fresh and new and young, despite your age. I mean, look at all of the creative directors and, you know, fashion, people in fashion, um, 
or like you know hip hop artists who they're like they're old now. Yeah, they have like fashion crazy, right? lines because they just have they're just they have a youthful spirit and they have their pulse on the culture. And I think part of that too is as we age, it's like it's important to continue to innovate and reinvent yourself. And that was one of the things that was one of the um, themes that when I wrote the 99U article, people hit on that, you know, they were still having success in their career because they didn't allow themselves to stagnate. You know, even if they worked for someone else, they had their own passion projects that they were working on at home. They had, they were part of organizations. Maybe they taught, maybe they were part of um, one person's part of AIGA where he works with a committee where it's like mostly young people and then him. And he's like, they keep me young. And so I think there are ways to stay plugged in and have your pulse on what's going on without feeling like you have to be, you know, um, you don't have to fit in with all of that, but you can still be among it and, and be aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a hundred percent on point. So, with that note, um, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to sort of promote that you're working on or that's coming out? Or, yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm in a place right now where I'm not, you know, really creating or producing new work. I mean, taking a lot in and you know resting and um yeah my body's making a human so that's, <laughs> that's a lot of work so I feel like for me you know I'm I mean the big thing right now is I'm I'm taking on clients um for the first quarter and I am doing so well, I guess one thing that I can plug um I'm always looking for letters. I write a column for Working Networking. It's a coaching column where I offer free career advice to people who are trying to solve a particular challenge about their career. And so people write to me um, and just share a few sentences about where they're at and the thing they're trying to figure out. And then I'll respond with some insights and you know maybe resources uh, they can take a look at and you know give them some homework, some steps that they can take to to move forward. Um, and so if people are interested in writing to me for that, they can email me at, uh, Tina at working, Um, and you know, they can, people can also go to my site, tinasmaker.com and, um, sign up for my monthly newsletter, um, and, and check out, you know, other places that I've, I've written and upcoming speaking engagements as well. Okay, great. Hey, you know what? I have a business question. Is it okay if I ask on the Yeah. Show? So you're, you do, um, speaking, professional speaking, Mm -hmm. uh, how does one establish the credibility to get paid to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of the speaking gigs I do are pro bono. Some are paid. Um, it just depends on the gig and, you know, I, I have rates that I will, you know, say this is my rate for speaking, but um, sometimes I'm okay with doing something pro bono. Um, for example, I spoke at the AIGA New York chapter, was it two years ago? And they are a nonprofit and their bylaws say that, you know, they don't, they don't compensate speakers. Um, that may change in the future, but for now, for the local chapters, it's pro bono, but I was fine to do it. And I ended up getting eight coaching clients out of that engagement. So it was well worth it. Um, to let people know about my work and what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, it's, for me speaking, I think I started to get invitations to speak when I was doing The Great Discontent, but 
I didn't feel like I really had anything to say. I was more highlighting what other people were doing for work. And so sometimes I would say yes, but mostly I would decline unless it was a panel or something that I could easily participate in without having to do a lot of prep. Um, and then once I started my coaching business, I began to get more invitations to speak. And that started with, um, I curated the, I was the chair of the AIGA national conference in 2017. And I had to kick off the conference with a 10 minute talk. And I just spoke about empathy and vulnerability. Um, and, you know, as, as one does just casually, mm-hmm. um, but I shared a little bit about my path and the things I was thinking about in my work and life. And that resonated. And, and someone from how was there and said, Oh, will you come speak at how? Mm-hmm. And then I spoke at how, and then, you know, and then people start, realizing, oh, she's available to speak and this is what she speaks about. And, um, and so really it was kind of organically for me, but then also I've, you know, pitched people, whether it's an informal conversation or emailing to, and it's usually someone I have some kind of connection with, or I've at least met before. Right. And I say, you know, Hey, these are the things I'm thinking about in my work right now. Um, I would love to do something for your event because I think there's a lot of overlap, you know, do you want to have a conversation about it? And it usually starts pretty informal. Um, and then, you know, you go through the all the logistics and, and things. But now I've been doing speaking long enough where I, on my site, I have videos. Um, I also have podcast interviews people can listen to. And so I get more people approaching me to ask me to speak about things that I'm known for speaking about, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I think everyone can take it. Everyone takes a different path to it. But that's just what worked for me. Right. I'm starting to get asked periodically. Uh, none paid yet though so I'm just kind of like uh trying to walk that line do I figure to figure out you know which is worth my yeah. energy which isn't and that kind of thing so you know one of the things I got really good advice when I was starting my coaching business um I can't even remember where this advice came from, <laughs> but essentially it's if you can do if you can say yes without resentment then it's okay to say yes. Mm. And I use this rule for, you know, I, I do some pro bono coaching too. Like I'm a mentor for an incubator here in New York. Um, it's called new Inc. It's part of new museum. And I do that pro bono. And I do that because I want to give back to the community and, and I love it, but you know, then I have my rates for my coaching clients and that's different. And speaking, sometimes I get paid and sometimes I choose to do pro bono but I am running a business and, you know, my time is important and I can't say yes to every opportunity. And so I kind of weigh it, like, is it something that is going to support my business goals right now? Do I have the time? What will I have to sacrifice to say yes to this if I'm not getting paid? Um, Yeah. And just kind of weigh the pros and cons. So if you think it's worth it and you can say yes without later feeling resentful, like, why am I doing this? They're not even paying me. (laughs) Mm. Then go for it. But if you think you're going to get to a place of resentment where you feel like, I don't want to do this. I said, yes, now I have to, I'm not getting paid. You know how it goes, right? Um, Then, then maybe it's a no. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause sometimes I, I I do feel like I would want to do stuff for free if it just felt right. And you know, um, but then I'm like, does that mean I'm taking credibility away from myself and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. It depends, you know, and you also consider like if I'm speaking to a company that has big budgets, they're going to pay me. Mm. If I'm speaking to, you know, I've spoken to schools, they don't have budgets. I've spoken to um, like nonprofit groups, you know, nonprofits. Um, 
they don't have budgets or sometimes they have small stipends, right? Or sometimes we can, I've worked to trades with people. Like, um, so it, I think it depends on who's asking. And right. if someone is actually, you know, honoring you and what you're worth, or they're just trying to take advantage and not pay you because they want to save on budgets. Yeah. 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 This is, yeah. So it's, it's basically, you just got to sniff that kind of stuff out, mm-hmm. figure it out. Yeah. So, well, Tina, thank you for giving me your time. And yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate this. And uh, can you just plug your website again or your socials or whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. I am at tinasmaker.com. So that's T-I-N-A-E-S-S-M-A-K-E-R.com. And then I am at Tina Smaker on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Sweet. So audience, like, this is crazy. I got Tina Asmaker on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you again, Tina. So. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Arcade Me podcast. Thank you to Lange Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at rpaysme.com or at rpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.